0: Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA, Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NILA, Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower
1: workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts, I'm Max Barrett. And I'm Amit Bindra, and thank you for joining us. Amit and I are here on an early Saturday morning. Um, good morning, Amit. Good morning.
0: I'm excited about this one. We're going to talk about baseball, which, candidly, I know very little about. So it's really going to be me peppering Max with a lot of random questions.
1: Oh, come on, you—you you didn't grow up a Brewers fan, and the...
0: I did actually. The very first sporting event I ever went to was an old County Stadium. It was Brewers. Toronto Blue Jays. This must have been like 1994, 1995. I remember I won some like Coca Cola can contest. So I got free tickets. I was very excited.
1: <laughs> I, you strike me as the type who would come to Chicago and wear a Brewers hat going to a Cubs game. Just, oh, I for sure would. Yep. 100%. I, uh, I was, th- so I grew up a White Sox fan and I, I was the troll type who was resentful and no one else could have nice things so when the Cubs made the playoffs in 03 I may or may not have worn a Marlins hat to school the day after the Steve Bartman game I won't say That's yay or nay funny. I'm just saying maybe it happened
0: I mean I would have done that had the Cubs lost when they won the series I've actually never been to a Cubs game I've been to um, a White Sox game the stadium is it's nice I like it actually but I've never been to a Cubs game
1: well Yeah, that that sounds about right. So let's let's jump into it. So today we're going to talk about the Major League Baseball lockout. Baseball season started about a week ago. It started late this year. There was not really much of a spring training. So historically, teams that are in the Midwest or East Coast, mostly East Coast teams, have gone to Florida and teams, you know, Midwest to West go to Arizona. That barely happened this year because ownership locked out the players. (coughs) So Amit, let's dive right in. Yeah, what does that mean? What does it mean for ownership to lock out players? So there are really two ways you can get a labor stoppage in in a sporting league. You can have, and I guess really any labor situation, you can have a strike where the players basically collect, get together, engage in a concerted act and say, hey, we're not working. The whole union is stopping. Or you get the opposite, which is what happened here. The ownership basically called off games and they are withholding salaries. They are themselves eating losses because the games are not happening and they're losing out on TV money. But it was the end of the collective bargaining agreement and ownership basically said no games, no transactions between teams and players or teams and each other. Nothing happens until we agree to a new contract with the union. We should back up for a moment. We're doing
0: this podcast. Obviously, it's employee to lawyer. We want to talk about employment issues and we pick baseball and like, really, because it's a dispute between management and employees or companies and individuals. And so, even though some baseball players make a lot of money, a lot actually surprisingly don't make that much money. And so, that's really what a lot of this is it is about workplace conditions and compensation. There's some rule changes and other things too, but it's still within the realm of employment law.
1: Right. It- Baseball baseball's interesting. So I was lucky at Kent. They make you take a third year or you can take a second year. I can't even remember anymore. Writing seminar. And the one I took was on baseball law. And it's basically a history of labor and antitrust law in the context of professional sports in the US. There's a great book, and I think I've referred to it on the show before, called A Well-Paid Slave. And it's about Kurt Flood, who was the first, I don't know if he was the first player to sue, but he took his case to the Supreme Court over being a free agent, basically having the right to have uh, the freedom to to choose between teams and bid have them bid for his services. That's a, it, For those who have time to read an interest in the subject and the inclination, I recommend the book because it gives you a really good history of baseball's antitrust exemption, which exists because Oliver Wendell Holmes thought it was a stupid sport and there's no way it could have been, you know, the sort of business and commerce that the courts should be regulating.
0: I've thought about this a lot, especially 10 years ago when I was thinking about doing more antitrust work. It's an interesting concept with sports because to some degree I get the argument that baseball, even though they compete on the field against each other, the teams really aren't competing with each other for money. They're competing with like the NFL and baseball and Netflix for TV ratings and entertainment and stuff like that. So there is an interesting thought question of from an antitrust standpoint, should they be exempt because they are really just like one organization competing with other mega organizations for revenue dollars
1: yeah and as our nfl podcast which our most recent nfl podcast which i think is going to run before this one points out you know nfl is king in this country they they print money um football you know baseball's uh baseball's market share has declined pretty precipitously for the last several decades um yeah has gone up
0: for sure not to get on too much of a tangent we'll circle it back to employment issues in a moment but basketball is finding this out too because football is trying to get into days that basketball pre- historically has dominated. So, for example, there's a lot of Christmas Day basketball games. And because of the pandemic, football has been toying around with different strategies there. And you can see that that's cutting into basketball revenue and basketball TV ratings.
1: Even college football is impacted by the NFL because college football is usually had Thursday and Friday nights. I mean, high school football had Fridays, but college has started to have some Fridays as well. And they've started doing things like Labor Day weekend. But the NFL was is- Kind of realizing, well, we could be even maximizing that money. Um, and far be it from Roger Goodell to ever miss an opportunity to to squeeze more. So, exactly. Um, but back to baseball and labor stoppages. Yep. So, okay. So there was a lockout. Why was there a lockout? At, at core, is, as is always the case, money is the main driver. So baseball's attendance has gone down. On the players' side, their refusal to agree to what the what the union had been offered by ownership pre-strike was over. Salaries had become stagnant over the last few years. Teams have gotten just stingier about not paying their own players, about basically letting their best players walk or their mid-tier players walk when it, when they're a reserve clause. So basically, if you get drafted by a team, they own you once you sign your amateur contract for a set number of years, and they have time to either bring you to the big leagues or set you free, so to speak, and let you become a free agent, but your salary is not, it's not totally free at that point. It is set by steps, by arbitration level step-ups or arbitration decided step-ups, and there are ranges that you're eligible for. So when it gets to the time of guys getting the free agency, those salaries have started to get capped. They're just not moving. Salaries across the board have gotten stagnant. So that's on the player side. On the management side, they saw how much money they could make with an expanded playoff. And I think what some of the other sports have done with bigger playoff pools, if you will, with more teams making it. So they want an expanded playoff, but that means more games from the player's perspective. They want to see a piece of that. And if salaries are not going up, there's minimal incentive for that. There were also some other rule changes that they've been toying with to make the game more interesting. Because scoring has gone down, the game has at times gotten a little formulaic lately and less interesting. And young people are not terribly interested anymore. I don't know that they solved that or helped themselves with the lockout. But
0: so I've always thought about baseball players in different tiers. You have the contracts we all see on TV or Twitter, whatever, where it's X player is going to get. $500 500 million dollars over 20 years. But then I but that's a small segment of the players. That's probably I don't know, 10% less than that. And then there's another tier of players who are in the major leagues, they get a decent paycheck, a good paycheck for most people, most Americans, but it's far less than the 500 million dollar headliners we see. And then there are the minor league players, some who I think may even work less than minimum
1: wage. Is that am I understanding that kind of correctly? Yeah, and I'm almost I, I guess if I were better prepared, I could tell you what this lawsuit was, but I'm pretty I, – I, I have some memory of there have been a couple of FLSA-level lawsuits on behalf of minor league players and staff. Minor league players, there are cases where guys will earn less than the minimum wage. I mean, it really runs the scope. Like, you have teams that have facilities in the Dominican Republic and Latin America where they scout players and develop them, and there are almost these complexes where kids – and I do mean kids, teenagers will go to live and play ball – where what they're earning is quite low even by you know minor league baseball standards and guys will come to the US and their contracts run out or they don't get renewed by guys and they end up you know in an awkward situation from an immigration perspective so that can happen minor league players who are drafted but not very high so the top level players get these seven figure bonuses even the guys who are not quite at that level will get you know, high five and six figure bonuses where at least you're getting a nice infusion of cash up front, but then you're on the minor league pay scale, which is quite low. They will also bilk you or you're getting charged a fee to use the clubhouse for the year, basically to pay the attendance. It's funny, you know, when George Steinbrenner, who was the famous owner of the New York Yankees for decades, who was famously very free with his money when it came to players, every now and again, he would have a weird fit, decide the team was underperforming and say he was cutting salary and expenses. Of course, he didn't cut player salaries. He would do things like cut employee dental. So, you know, it, it's one of those things. There are some people who do very well in baseball and teams with payrolls like the Dodgers that are at $285 million for their 25 or I guess now 26 or 28-man roster. The Mets at $266 million. On the other hand, you have the Baltimore Orioles who are not trying to win at 58 million in Oakland, who's never trying to win at 48 million. So there's a big disparity in how guys are getting paid team to team, player to player and all of that. When even with a Dodger, they may have a couple of folks who get paid a lot
0: who have like 30 to $50 million a year contracts, but that their minor league players probably are significant. I know they are significantly lower.
1: Yeah. The min- the median baseball salary right now is about 1.2 million, which again, obscene amount of money very very high for the average person but that's the middle point so that's the middle point like right it's also, the floor. it's skewed by the high-end guys the reality is for most players it's 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 not like that and and the
0: minor league teams are owned still by a major league club so for example
1: the la dodgers owner has a minor league system that that owner would have correct is that right I think so. I think the teams, some of the teams are actually independently owned and they have contracts with the major league teams to essentially the minor league team may have its own ownership, but that just means you own the facility, you own the rights to the team name, and you're paying most of the team's salaries. But the major league teams will make a deal with you. So the White Sox, for example, their AAA team is in uh, Charlotte. Uh, north carolina so they're the i always forget their double a team where michael jordan played was the birmingham barons let's use them i remember that yeah yeah from space jam and the barons so the white Sox, as they draft players will assign them to the different teams they've got from a ball or uh, extended rookie or uh, extended arizona fall league uh, spring training all the way up to double and triple a they pay the bonuses but i believe the guys salaries are paid by minor league baseball there is some sort of a deal that i'm i've never totally understood but yeah it's If they're not owned by the MLB teams, they're at least controlled by them in large measure. I know this is true in basketball, and I think football
0: to a degree. In baseball, are cities and local governments, for the most part, funding baseball stadiums?
1: Some cities are starting to get smarter about it, but it's less and less over, but it still happens. There was quite a bit of corruption and sort of smoke around when the formerly Florida and now Miami Marlins got their new stadium in Florida. I I seem to remember a, a legislator may have even gotten indicted for crooked about that. It's something that's happened over time. I think it's pretty well documented now that cities and states do not benefit from that kind of an expenditure. You are putting hundreds of millions of dollars or tax breaks that function as essentially directly funding it into a stadium that the team basically owns. There's always this notion that it's going to pump money into the community. But if you go look at Wrigleyville right now, you know, you don't recognize it from five, ten years ago whenever Tom Ricketts bought the team. No. I'm it's, almost positive yeah. he owns most of the land that is now around it and all those businesses. I don't know that a lot of others are benefiting but for him from From the changes in that area i mean i suppose you could say oh there's new jobs and all of that but in reality he's the one raking in all the money from it yeah and that
0: so this was a roundabout way of me getting to the median salaries in in baseball are 1.2 million again that's the middle point owners are making a ton because they're not paying for the stadiums they're getting a benefit from potentially the stuff around the stadiums if they own those businesses so for them it's a huge windfall and it's not like they're losing out on money and for the most part, almost always, they're independently wealthy, too. So they have side businesses that make a a significant amount of money, too. Does baseball require a certain amount of revenue to go to players?
1: They do. There is some sort of a revenue sharing. And one of the big fights about 20 years ago when I was a kid was about getting revenue sharing out there. So teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates. So keep in mind, they're still very it's not like these are small town businesses where mom and pop are like trying to fundraise to keep players in town right like these are still wealth organizations they just are not seeing. you know pittsburgh doesn't see the same kind of ad revenue attendance and everything else that say the new york yankees does or have the same obviously economic fan base there is there is some revenue sharing players are supposed to see at least a minimum amount of some of the team e money i believe that comes in the salaries are supposed to hit a minimum level
0: why don't we take this opportunity to take a short break and circle back to arbitrations. Hey, this is Ahmed and Max. Thanks for listening to Employee to Lawyer.
1: I hope you're all enjoying the show and the content and all of our guest stories. And we'd love your help in spreading news about Neil Illinois and the show.
0: Please encourage your friends and family to subscribe and share.
1: And if you happen to listen to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But only if it's going to be a five-star rating. Yeah, otherwise we're all set.
0: All right, so we're back right before the pause I wanted to circle back then to arbitration. So, you mentioned something about arbitrations and salary. What does that mean? So,
1: as players come up, let's say a guy gets drafted, he matriculates through the minor leagues. At some point, he comes up to the major leagues and he starts to accrue what's called service time. So, the way baseball has worked historically, up until the Kurt Flood case I've referenced a few times, players never got freedom to contract. Totally. There was something there still is something called the reserve clause, and basically it is how a team owns your labor. They get first right of refusal over you as a player. They own your contract for up to a set amount of time. If you can't come to a deal in the time that the team owns your contract, in the time if you can't come to a deal with the team over what your labor is worth at a given moment, you... (laughs) We're all very familiar with this. You don't get to go file a lawsuit over it. You go to an arbitration that is set based on the collective bargaining agreement. It sets salary scale, it sets the factors that are considered for it. And a neutral, ostensibly, I I would think a neutral arbitrator decides based on how the arbitration goes what your salary should be set at if it comes to that point. And I found this. I was only digging around a little bit because, again,
0: baseball is less my thing than yours. But I found it super interesting. It sounds like the way it works is both sides, the owners and the player put out a number and the arbitrator just picks a number.
1: Is that right? I believe so. I mean, I don't think it happens quite that simply. There's always there have been stories of some teams. I think it was Oakland Athletics. They had an owner, Charlie Finley, who was pretty notorious for just going scorched earth against his players when they went up for Arb and just saying really nasty things about their capabilities and their performance and why they deserve lower numbers. So yeah, they're both proposing numbers that are based on what scales are out there. Like, so one of the white Sox best pitchers from last year, a guy named Carlos Rodan, they did not offer him arbitration this year and they let him become a free agent. He went to the San Francisco giants. I was very unhappy about this, but one of the reasons they did that was because the arbitration number they knew going in was going to be about 18 and a half million. And they didn't want to pay him that much for one season. Um, Setting aside whether we think it's good that, you know, athletes make that kind of money, I I think it's fine given what the owners are making. They should get paid for it. But, you know, the White Sox didn't want to pay it. So they knew what the arbitration number was going to be. So they said no. Okay. So
0: it sounds like the way the process works is you have like an actual arbitration. Everyone presents their side of what the number should be. The owner has a number. The player has a number. And then the arbitrator or the panel picks one of those two numbers based on what's presented.
1: Yeah, or something in between.
0: Okay. So there would definitely then be a strategy too of like how to even anchor that number. So with this situation with the White Sox, 18.5 is going to be the number most likely. It's easy to justify that the player is probably going to pick that number because he knows the arbitrator will agree.
1: Yeah. Or they don't want to go to arbitration. I mean, in Rodan's case, I think the case, his agent is sort of famous. His name's Scott Boris and he's depending on which side you're on, he's either famous or notorious for getting his guys a lot of money. In the late late 90s, early 2000s, there were a bunch of like guys who really had no business getting expensive contracts who were Boris clients getting just obscene deals from really incompetent teams. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a strategy. Like in this case, I think they didn't want to go to arbitration. They wanted him to become a free agent so he could get a long-term contract and more security. And I think there was a real threat that he would take it if they offered it because fine, screw you guys. I'm going to take an $18 million contract. That's Mm -hmm. a lot of money. But also it's not pulled out of thin air. Like it is based on what are the average salaries for guys of this competence? What was his performance last year? How many years service time does he have injury? Like there are different factors that go into it and it is set by scale. So there is, there is an element of group. What is going on around us that impacts what that number is. They don't just get to pick it. So what was
0: in the ultimate agreement to end the lockout or the strike?
1: So there were a few things that changed. There are some rule changes that are ostensibly meant to make the game a little bit more accessible to people. So baseball is unique in that there's a lot of dead time. And there's a lot of time between pitches over the last couple of years, they've added pitch clocks to speed up the game. They are, I believe, shortening that one of the other things they are doing is changing how draft pick compensation works. So one of the ways that salaries have been kept low is if a guy is arbitration eligible and uh, you offer him the chance to go to arbitration. He declines and becomes a free agent up until the last year or two. Teams have had to surrender a draft pick if they sign another team's player. So the effect of this is teams are less willing to spend as much money for it. It has served to keep salaries lower because as teams have gotten smarter over the last 10 years, they've started to understand. There was a time where teams didn't. Some teams like the Yankees, for example, were notorious for not caring about the minor leagues because they figured we'll, we'll just pay. Expensive guys, but teams have gotten savvier. They've gotten tighter with their money. George Steinbrenner's dead and his family runs it now, and they don't want to spend quite as crazily as he did. Teams have realized that there is value not just in having minor league players to make your team better in the future, but that those players are cheaper. And so you get younger players who cost less, who will make your team better in the future maybe, And giving that up for a guy who you're actually probably paying for past performance is not useful. So it has changed that process a little bit. Service time manipulation is a big deal. So we talked about teams own your contract. You don't get free from that and get full free agency until you accrue a certain amount of what's called service time. Basically time spent on a major league roster. And the Cubs cubs fans may remember they were famous in 2015 or 16 one of their best players from their championship team chris bryant was ready to go to the big leagues like immediately but they famously sat on him and basically made him stay in the minor leagues until may so that they would have his services for another full year after that year it wouldn't account as a full year accrued so one of the changes was that guys who finish at a certain level of performance get an additional year's service time counted. There were changes to how the luxury tax, so basically if teams go over a certain salary level altogether, how that is taxed and paid to other teams. They have instituted a lottery on the draft, so tanking for people who watch basketball. It's a term they're familiar with, the The Philadelphia 76ers were famous for deliberately trying to lose as many games over several consecutive years as possible to the point that the NBA got really angry with them. That has been a strategy in baseball as well. The difference is it takes a lot longer and your fans seem much harder in baseball. Yeah. Yeah. When you tank and you're the Cleveland Cavaliers and you get LeBron James, it's pretty easy to show your fans that there's a reason to come back. You get the local kid who may be the best player of all time, which I know is blasphemy in Chicago. He's on the short list. I happen to think he's better, but, but I, mean, the, I mean, you're wrong a lot, but any event that's neither here nor there, but yeah, nine NBA finals. We'll do that another day.
0: Yeah. We'll do that another day. Six championships though. Six finals MVPs. Yeah. It two, to- two three
1: yeah, so the minimum salary floor was raised as well from, from major league players. The big one that ownership wanted was it expanded the playoffs. I think they realized they made a lot of money during the pandemic having more teams in a playoff tournament. They wanted that. Players want to see some benefits to that as well. In terms of game, we're not going to go over all of it. They shortened the amateur draft. There's going to be advertisements on uniforms. And one big one, two big ones, the designated hitter is now in the National League. So pitchers are not hitting anymore. And there's something called a shift. Yeah, what is a shift? This was one of my, I only wrote down three questions, but this was one of them. Okay, so certain hitters, usually left-handed hitters, there are certain hitters who do what's called pull the ball all the time. So there are certain, usually power hitters who hit from the left side, and if you think about what it looks like, that means your right side is forward. When you're hitting, when you face the pitcher's mound, well, what that means normally is they hit the ball to the right side of the field almost always. They almost never hit the ball the other direction unless it's in the air and it's going out of the park. So there was a guy who played for Cleveland and the White Sox, Jim Tomey, who was famous for this. David Ortiz, Big Poppy, famously did this. But the idea is if you play these guys like any other hitter and you put the shortstop in the third baseman on the left side and everybody else where they belong, you're going to give up a lot more hits to these guys because they never hit the ball to the left side. So what teams have started to do is put their entire infield and outfield on the right side of the field when these guys hit. So when I was watching the Sox game last night, a guy named, gosh, I think it was Brett Phillips for Tampa Bay was hitting, who's a lefty. The third baseman was standing basically where the shortstop normally does. So right near second base, the second baseman, the shortstop was in short center field sort of playing a position that only exists in beer league softball. The second baseman was in right field, and the first baseman was playing deep on the infield, but generally where he normally belongs. The result of this has been there are fewer hits because where these guys hit the ball that most other hitters would get a hit, it's going right at somebody. Some of this comes from teams have gotten very sophisticated about knowing where there are something called spray charts, so teams know where guys hit the ball all the time. It's just like anything else in the world. Data has become more available and teams have gotten smarter. So the league starting next year has changed that rule. They have a pitch clock that's getting shortened again. So there, there have been some other rules changed to make it more accessible to fans.
0: Yeah, a lot of this comes from like Moneyball. I'm sure people remember that from like the mid 2000s or so. It seems big picture wise, a lot of these rules are set up to grow the money pot. So there's more money coming in, more
1: people are watching games. But then are there guarantees to give a bigger chunk of that pie to players? It's a good question. I think there is, but I don't remember the specifics of it, and I probably should have looked it
0: No, no worries. Yeah, but logically, it seems like that's what – it benefits the players and the owners to say, look, we want to expand the money in the pot, and then that way we can give you all more money too. It's not like a win-win negotiation. So some of these things make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense to say if someone isn't going to hit the ball to half the field, why are we going to have to have a player there? But if that's going to cause people not to watch the game and therefore decrease revenue and then salaries, et cetera, it makes sense to get rid of that. And it seems like everyone can agree to something like that, so long as there's going to be a split and a benefit to the players too.
1: Yeah, I think like anything else, there's always a disparity in bargaining power here. The one thing baseball players have that football has not for a while is guaranteed salaries. So when guys get released, it at the big league level, once you've made it and you're a real free agent, minor league players don't really have this kind of protection. But if you can make it, your your money tends to be guaranteed. So even if they get rid of you, your contract is guaranteed for the most part.
0: Yeah, that's the difference between most workers. Most workers are at will and can be separated for any non-discriminatory, non-retaliatory reason, whereas most athletes outside of the NFL have guaranteed contracts that aren't dependent upon performance. They can get more money based on performance metrics and incentives but usually there's a baseline of you're guaranteed X amount and you're going to get it no matter what.
1: They have both guaranteed contracts and a union, so they have many protections most of our clients do not. Do not, exactly. Um, Um, Anything we missed? Anything else you wanted to cover? I probably probably missed a lot, but uh, (laughs) no, I think I've vomited enough of the information here. Um, Well, that was cool. I I mean, from my perspective, that was
0: super interesting because I don't follow this to the same level you do. So thanks for running us through that. Uh, I'm gonna
1: put you on the spot again. Who's your shout out of the week? I got a couple. I realized yesterday after we stopped, I was like, Oh, my brother got engaged. Oh, congratulations. Thank is you. this the brother that does movies? No. No. No, although I saw him. No, this is um my brother Jake. He's uh he's a psychologist in the army out in San Antonio, so he surprised his girlfriend last weekend when happy. Awesome. Yeah, it was
0: congratulations. Great. And for the listeners who don't know, Max's other brother, I think was in one of the Spider Man movies, right?
1: He was, yeah, Zach. He was the first openly transgender actor in a Marvel movie. He had two lines. If anybody's ever seen Spider-Man Far From Home, and they're at a, J.B. Smoove goes to a museum that's closed that he wants to go to, and he's like, oh, no, it's closed. When is it opening again? And Zach says November. So whenever we see him, we say November to him. And then when they go to Prague, at one point, and they're at a nice hotel, they're like, wow, how do we end up here? And Zach's like, yeah, what are we doing here? That's Um, super cool. All right, who's your second shout-out? Yeah, I think that was it. That's good enough. That's fine. Okay, that's perfect. What about you, Not letting you uh, up,
0: Yeah, I'm going to a birthday party today for my friend's daughter. So happy birthday to Layton. That'll be uh, my shout out. Cop out. That was too easy. I know. I know. That's why I put you on the spot first.
1: <laughs> I'm going to have to start doing things to put you on the spot. You used to do our outlines and make those things really long. So I'm going to yep. out with something. Anyway. Yeah, I got
0: yelled at for that, so I stopped.
1: <laughs> By our producer, Steve. Yeah. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. Please subscribe and share. Stay safe. Thanks, Amit. Yeah, thanks, Matt. This was awesome.
0: Our podcast is intended to provide general reviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that. The hosts' opinion. We are not your attorneys. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice for legal questions. Please consult with an attorney.